Frank Figluzzi, former FBI Assistant Director for Counterintelligence. Join me on a journey to explore our nation's security, the forces that threaten it, and the people who preserve it. Let's talk with insiders in and around the intelligence community, law enforcement, and the military, including, of course, the FBI. They'll take us deep into their stories, their mission, and their lives as we go behind and beyond the Bureau. Lie, cheat, and steal in the interest of the United States government. To shift, change, more. We're going to teach you espionage. Yeah, we don't want a domestic spy agency out of control. Uh, learning Vietnamese six hours a day for 47 weeks. We still don't have the tools in the toolkit, in my opinion. We don't have a domestic terrorism law. Americans have turncoat mostly for money and for revenge. Never mind a wake-up call. We can't even agree on what an alarm clock looks yeah, like. That the same mobs could be coming back to Washington to overturn the democratic processes. That is coming. Jeff Stein is the founder and editor-in-chief of Spy Talk, a newsletter covering the U.S. intelligence community, Defense Department, and foreign policy on the Substack platform. Before that, he was the Spy Talk columnist and national security correspondent at Newsweek, and previous to that, the Spy Talk blogger at the Washington Post. I can't think of a better person to have on this episode to go back in time and talk about intelligence, spying, espionage, counterintelligence, and then hit fast forward and apply what we know from the past to the present in terms of the spy game. And Jeff, we've got more in common than just a uh, passion for the intelligence community and covering national security issues. Uh, We're both podcasters on MSW Media, Uh, which is the now empire uh, ruled by one Alison Gill of Muller She Wrote fame. Thanks for for joining me. Great to be here, Frank. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm looking forward to the discussion. You know, you've got, uh, I I don't want to use the overused phrase encyclopedic knowledge, but you've been around. You've been around the block and you've covered national security and espionage for quite some time, and I think our listeners are going to enjoy hearing um, some of the some of the not only some of the war stories, but um, mostly your background and how you even got into covering the intelligence national security beat. Let's start at the beginning, as they say. Tell us about your journey into intelligence work and then into journalism. Well, it was kind of an accident, as often happens in life. Uh, you end up on a path you had not chosen. uh, And then you find it kind of interesting. And in my case, I was being drafted into the Vietnam War. That's how old I am. Mm. I I was a feckless youth playing in a folk music trio on Martha's Vineyard, and I got my draft notice. And, uh, you know, back in those days, when you got drafted, you almost certainly went into the infantry. And I didn't even like camping, so I knew I would be no good at the infantry. Uh, A friend of mine was in Army intelligence, and he helped me get uh, into intelligence. I I had to sign up for an extra year to do that, but anything to not go face down in a rice paddy in Vietnam was uh, attractive to me. I guess it's my version of draft dodging. So anyway, I ended up in intelligence, and I really had no idea what it was going to be. But uh, I soon ended up uh, in a class uh, at spy school, learning how to uh, lie, cheat, and steal in the interest of the United States government. So now, where where was this spy school? Are you allowed to tell us? (laughs) I can now, because it no longer exists uh, in Baltimore. It was at uh, an old Army base right on the edges of Baltimore, in the industrial area of Baltimore. It's now down in uh, Arizona. So you, uh, you're young, you're, as you say, you're trying to, you're trying to avoid uh, going face down in a rice paddy in the Vietnam War, and you, you find out, hey, there, one way to do that is to, to sign up, and sign up sp- for a specialty in intelligence. You show up your first day, you're in this intelligence class, what you look around, what's, what are your thoughts, what do you see, what are you, what are you starting to learn? Well, um, it was an interesting class. Most of my uh, classmates were uh, 
uh, college graduates or even law school graduates. Uh, I had a, the son of F. Scott Fitzgerald in my class. I had uh, the son of a famous industrialist in my class. It was an interesting mix of people. And as I said, I wasn't sure what I was getting into, but uh, in the first class, the first lecture, they shut the blinds, put a big red secret sign on the wall and said, we're going to teach you something uh, and enter you into a class that it's the only thing in the army that after you hear our description of what we're going to train you to do, you can actually raise your hand and say, you don't want to have any part of it and walk out and do something else. And Thereupon, they, uh, the lecturer said, uh, we're going to teach you espionage. And espionage is illegal uh, in foreign countries. You're a spy. And if you get caught, it's going to be a difficult life. But m more importantly, you may be asked to do things that go against your ethical or moral code. And uh, after I finish this lecture, if you want to leave, you can. One guy did get up and, and leave. And I later found out that he went into ballistic missiles as if that was a superior <laughs> somehow, somehow he, ethical he had, choice. Yeah, he had no moral issue with lobbing missiles. But uh, yeah, I, yeah, the spying was way too much for him. So it was fun. You know, I mean, it was a boy's life. You learn how to run around the city uh, hiding things under benches called dead drops or in bushes or in a department store. You learn how to do secret writing, invisible writing. You learn uh, secret photography, uh, how to do micro dots. You learn all the uh, tools of classical espionage. And, and frankly, it, it was just really a lot of fun. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's a uh, wild, it's a wild ride and it, it's, it, the army can't be accused of pulling any punches in that, on that first day for, for you. They told it, they told it like it was. So you get through this training and where are you assigned? Are you get, do you get into the thick of things? What happens? Well, uh, I was first assigned to go to Thai language school for a year, me and another classmate. And we were sort of, you know, mocking our classmates who were either going directly to Vietnam or the Vietnamese language school. But the day before we were supposed to go and call some telephone number in Washington and be picked up and go to some secret language training, uh, our orders were changed and we were sent to Vietnamese language school. So I ended up in Vietnamese language school for a year uh, before I then shipped out to Vietnam. And where was where was the high stress Vietnamese language uh, school? Where where did that happen? Well, at first we thought we would go to lovely Monterey, California, which is the headquarters of the Defense Language Institute, or at least was back then. But uh, they were overflowing with Vietnamese classes. So uh, through some political finagling, uh, it ended up in Texas, wow. in El Paso, Texas. Wow. So we spent a year in an abandoned uh, Air Force base, Biggs Field, uh, learning Vietnamese six hours a day for 47 weeks. Mm. A total immersion environment. You spoke Vietnamese all the time in classes, uh, no English. And it, and it was pretty intense. Can you... Can you still like uh, exchange pleasantries at least? Uh, in I, I, I can. Uh, actually, you know, I get my hair cut uh, by a Vietnamese woman and we chat a little bit. The problem is that I, I can still speak idiomatic Vietnamese, but my vocabulary is entirely shot. And so, I'll, you know, I, she's very kind to me, uh, you know, listening to my Vietnamese. My accent is still very good, but she'll respond to me and I, you know, I only half understand what she's saying. Right. Just, just and I can't remember the words. Right. Yeah. Just enough to get you in trouble. So speaking of yeah. getting in trouble, you've eventually launch and get deployed somewhere now? I did. And speaking of language uh, and its role in, in spying, one of my first nights in uh, Da Nang, this is big city on the coast of uh, South Vietnam, big port city. Uh, I was invited with my teammates to go to a cocktail party at the U.S. consulate. And I was actually memorizing my cover on the way to the consulate. And my cover was that I was a Department of Defense civilian working on refugee affairs. Uh, there was no backstopping for this cover whatsoever. Anyway, I met this uh, South Vietnamese colonel at the party, and I'm sharing a cocktail with him. And, you know, I was eager to use my Vietnamese, so I'm chatting in Vietnamese with him. He uh, trumps me by speaking French 
And I get through that for a little bit with my high school and college French. And then he says to me in English, uh, what do you do? And I say, I'm a, a DOD civilian working on refugee issues. And he takes a sip and he looks at me and he says, oh, you're a spy. Mm. Yeah. So, so much, I did kind yeah. of a Rodney Dangerfield spit up. You know? So much, so much for memorizing your cover. Yeah. So we got a new cover for me and uh, I worked off the grid, lived on the economy for the rest of my tour. All right. So you, you're one of these kind of rare journalists that actually lived uh, what they cover. And it's, I don't mean that to be any kind of a derogatory statement against the outstanding journalists who cover the national security beat at all, but it's different when, when you've actually lived it. Get us now to the point where you're, you're headed back home and you're figuring out what to do for a living. Yeah, uh, I, I thought I'd be a teacher. I sort of envisioned myself as kind of, a, you know, a comfortable teaching job in a tweed coat. Uh, with leather arm patches at some prep school in New England. But then the Vietnam War really turned even worse. There was the emergence of the Pentagon Papers uh, describing all the lies and deceit in Vietnam. There there was the invasion of Cambodia. And I I knew a lot of what was really going on there in terms of intelligence operations and excesses, including in the CIA's uh, Phoenix program. And uh, I met an editor of a lefty liberal news service uh, when I was out in Berkeley going to graduate school studying China. And she encouraged me to write a piece. And so I did. And it ended up on, uh, you know, front pages or prominently uh, displayed in a number of newspapers across the country. And I thought, well, this is kind of a different way of teaching. I I never had a, a big desire to be a reporter. So I, I wrote some more pieces and, and, and they likewise got attention. These are sort of what we might call reported columns, reported op-ed type pieces. And eventually I ended up in, in uh, getting a job in journalism. Uh, I was of the Watergate generation that was spurred into journalism uh, by a desire to uncover bad things that the government was doing. Uh, I first had to serve uh, my apprenticeship at a, a local weekly in Northern Virginia covering Fairfax County government. I learned a lot about just basic local government there. Well, a long story short, I eventually uh, ended up in Washington covering national security issues for the Christian Science Monitor, uh, freelancing for magazines and newspapers. And, uh, and, And then I wrote my first book, about a Green Beret murder case in Vietnam. And uh, that landed me later uh, at UPI, where I was uh, assistant and then deputy uh, foreign news editor. Wow. And so on and so forth. What's the name of the, of the first book, if our listeners want to look it up? It's called A Murder in Wartime, and it involves the Green Berets' uh, extrajudicial, as we call it, uh, execution of a suspected double agent a Vietnamese guy that they actually, I think, wrongly uh, suspected of being a communist double agent. Um, And after 10 days of interrogation with so-called truth serums and so on that they got from CIA, they decided he hadn't confessed uh, after days of brutal interrogation. So they decided, well, if he wasn't a communist when he came in, he certainly is one now. And they went to the local CIA office and asked what they should do. And the, the local CIA guys who were not career, they were ex-military guys uh, working for CIA. They said, wink, nod, we can't tell you what to do, but you know what to do. So they took him out in a boat and shot him in the head and wrapped him in tire rims and chains and dumped him overboard. And then his wife showed up uh, to say, uh, where's my husband? And uh, thereupon the whole thing unraveled and it became kind of a cause to live for both the left and the right. The lawyer for one of the Green Berets put it this way. He said, if my client and his comrades did as the government says they did, that they killed a communist, isn't that what they're here for? I mean, we don't, we don't capture uh, cities here. We're not capturing rivers or mountaintops. We're here to kill communists. If that's what they did, they should be getting the medal, not being tried for, for murder. And that frames the, uh, 
the story perfectly for me. And uh, the Green Berets became a cause celeb among supporters of the war. Wow. It's, uh, it sounds like it's worth adding to our reading list. That, that's for sure. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing. I'm Sarah Ferris. Join me and my co-host, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program, Catherine Schweit. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've watched the reality of poor planning. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I really sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Our hope is that together we can stop the cries of never again fading into until next time. All right, so the story of your early entry into spying for the U.S. military and then the transition into journalism, eventually covering uh, national security and intelligence, is uh, it has set the stage now for, I think, where we're going to go with this, which is, let's talk about first how covering national security and intelligence has changed over the years, if it's changed at all. Uh, and your your ability, your access, um, the issues shifting or not. Give us your kind of your perspective looking back. Well, I think it's changed a lot. First of all, before 911, you could count the number of investigative reporters in national security on one hand. At the top, you had people like Bob Woodward, of course, and Seymour Hirsch. And then there were kind of the rest of us, a half a dozen of us. Uh, we all knew each other quite well. Actually, I worked for Woodward for a while back in the day, uh, and I knew Cy Hirsch. Uh, he had called me as a reporter, actually, after my after the first pieces I wrote back in the 70s. So then, uh, and, and you could empty out a dinner party if you brought up this guy, uh, Osama bin Laden, living in a cage in Afghanistan. Terrorism was kind of a boring subject, an esoteric subject. Uh, followed only by us interested in the subject. So uh, after 911, however, the beat exploded and uh, newspapers, magazines realized that they really had to expand their uh, roster of reporters covering uh, terrorism and Homeland Security. Remember, the Homeland Security Department was created in 2002. I actually was hired by Congressional Quarterly to come in and start a daily covering Homeland Security. Um, and I did that for uh, eight, nine years. So suddenly and now, uh, uh, especially with the Trump administration, uh, all the uh, Russia stuff and so on, the number of reporters covering uh, national security has just exploded. There are uh, countless yeah. reporters uh, in broadcast news, cable uh, newspapers, major newspapers, and of course, freelancers and magazines covering various aspects of national security from so-called Russiagate to Chinese spying, hacking, all the, the full range of national security issues. There's a lot of people on the beat now. It's safe to say that the, the number of reporters uh, in the business uh, makes it a more competitive challenge? Yeah, but you know, there, there's always, uh, there's more news than reporters, even with the explosion of journalists covering national security especially investigative stuff. I mean, I started my little spy talk uh, uh, Substack operation uh, back in September 2020. And we have found plenty of stories to do uh, or, or to look, look at in a fresh way that other people have not done, uh, not because they're not competent or ignoring the issues, but uh, there's just so much to do, so much to write about. You know, I'm not a big news organization and I actually get tips, you know, day after day or people writing to me and say, you should do more on this or that. And we just don't have the horses to do it. But our readership has steadily increased in leaps and bounds uh, over the past, uh, what is it, 13, 14 months or so. And, um, and then we started a podcast back in March 
uh, and that's uh, done quite well. Uh, so uh, obviously there's a hunger for innovative uh, reporting on national security issues. And um, there's plenty of stories that haven't been fully investigated. Yeah, clearly that that public appetite for all things intelligence and national security, I'm I'm feeling in a, a personal and professional way. I, if anybody had ever told me, uh, hey, Frank, after 25 years in the FBI, much of it involving highly classified counterintelligence work, you're going to be on uh, uh, national television regularly explaining counterintelligence to people. Hmm. I, I would have said two things. One is you're out of your mind. And two, what in God's name has happened in the country that has caused this appetite? And, and so, you know, here we are where I find now uh, just talking with neighbors, talking to people at the grocery store, the level of sophistication in the general public uh, about, you know, intelligence, uh, they, they, they're dialed in. They, they've got, they, Mm -hmm. many of them understand the Russian threat. They understand the terrorism threat. And, um, you know, if you and me and people like us could play any role in that, then then we we should be doing that. You you know you you said something uh, that really uh, I think hammers home the 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 fact that the changes and shifts geopolitically and globally also are reflected in in, in intelligence work. So a nine eleven event, the the onset of hacking and and malware, nation states and and non nation states getting into. Um, the business all causes the intelligence community to shift, change, morph, and of course, reporting on it uh, has to follow that. How do you think that the the changes over time have caused intelligence agencies and operators to change? And as as long as you've covered this, do you think spying has changed? Do you think spies themselves are changing? And and what? You know, you talked about your early days getting trained in the military. Do you think the skill sets required are different? Do you think young people today are equipped? Um, Let's talk about the changes in spying and spies. Well, there's two prongs to this answer, Frank. One is that uh, the technological advances in surveillance, the biometric checks at airports now, Facial, facial recognition technology has really put up new barriers to all intelligence agencies, our own, and of course, our adversaries, the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, and so forth. Not so easy to travel across borders, uh, like in the old days where you'd, you'd enter a country under one name with one passport, you'd get to your hotel, and you'd change your identity, you'd change your passport, uh, you might put a fixed uh, mustache on or take it off or all these sorts of things to change your appearance and to change the papers you carried. Very, very difficult to do that now. So that's that's one aspect of uh, spying that has changed. And of course, you know, you, you know what? Before we get off that, I, I you're right on with this. I, I can confirm that certainly at the FBI, um, even and particularly on the criminal side of the FBI, the undercover folks are wrestling with this whole idea of what it means to establish bona fides and and a legend, as they say, for undercover agents. If you have spent uh, your your young life on social media um, and you're all over TikTok and Facebook and Twitter, and you're, as you said, there's facial recognition, um, the world has access to your face and, and your background, it's incredibly difficult to try and make that go away if that's even possible and then establish, mm-hmm. establish a new persona so you can operate undercover as, as a, a counterintelligence officer uh, in, in the CIA major issue. And even on the criminal side as uh, undercover operatives try to yeah. try to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and in our, in this week's edition of the spy talk podcast here on MSW shameless plug, we have a, a, a guest of uh, a, a longtime former CIA officer who talked about that the lack of a social media history would also draw attention. So the intelligence agencies of all nations are really try, trying to untangle these wrinkles and, and find a way to uh, o- uh, operate covertly. About the new generation of uh, intelligence officers that we're, we're getting, this is an uh, issue that has intrigued me for a long time, ever since I was in intelligence. 
And I wondered what, what, what attracted me to that and what I was good at and what I was not good at. And as you know, I wrote a piece in the Washington Post magazine a decade ago about what makes a perfect spy tick. And I interviewed uh, some people who were involved in training at CIA, and they told me that the current crop of recruits, which would have been the millennials and now Gen X, they're as bright and interesting and interested as any generation of intelligence officers, but they're, they're quick uh, to run out of patience. They want to do really big things right out of the gate. They quickly get bored. They're not really interested in starting out in the backwater small station in Africa or Latin America or a backwater uh, country in Asia. They do their time learning the rudimentary skills of spying in real life. They don't want to do that. They want to go to Moscow or Beijing right away. Um, and also that, you know, it was a calling years ago. Uh, and uh, often, too often, uh, young people coming into CIA, uh, working for five years, getting their ticket punched and getting that CIA credential on their resume and then leaving and going off into private industry, the Beltway Bandits and so on peddling themselves as uh, master spies, if you will, and getting uh, jobs at twice, three times the wages they were making at CIA, in some cases going back to CIA as a contractor. So this is a real challenge for the personnel people at CIA and other intelligence agencies to train, to attract and train and hold on to skilled people in an age where um, money plays a much bigger role. And also, you know, comfort. Back in the Cold War, I really sound like, you know, grandfather yeah. now. You know, back in our day, um, you signed up for the duration and it wasn't about the money. It was about serving your country. Today, it's more about, you know, people want a, a nine to five life. Uh, they expect to be home with their, their spouses and their children in the evening. Um, and you can't blame them for that, but that's not what they're supposed to be signing up for. Yeah. Intelligence is a 24-7, seven days a week job. And it's not easy. It's hard work. If it was easy, everybody would do it. It's just a generational shift. Yeah, the, I mean, the message here is that the intelligence community is not a monolith. They reflect what's going on trending in our society. And I think any corporate HR manager would tell you what, you know, what you've just said, which is, hey, we're experiencing this, you know, in our company. We, it, we, the, the phrase work-life balance is, you know, uttered every day by 20 and 30 somethings. And I, I share, I share some of the uh, consternation I hear in your voice. I, as a manager, you know, and leader in the FBI, I saw the changes over 25 years and some young, talented folks talking about work-life balance. And, you know, again, I'll, I'll sound ancient as well. When I was handed my badge and credentials, I was just thrilled to have them. I, I, and whatever the FBI wanted to do with me, if it was going to be bank robberies or if it was going to be terrorism, whatever, just sign me up. I'm here. That's changed. And, that, and that's mm -hmm. a reality. Uh, and, and this notion of people leaving, again, you, you know, the, these, this was, you were in for a penny, in for a pound. It was a career of service. And Yes, the job hopping that you see in the private sector is uh, does happen. Not not to the same extent, but it clearly happens. And I I certainly saw it in my colleagues uh, with CIA. Uh, they they do five years, um, and and yes, money was an attraction. Uh, a change of venue was an attraction, and uh, certainly the idea that you could have your weekends and holidays to your own to yourself was was an attraction as well. Um, I can only hope that kids today. Yeah, kids today <laughs> Yeah. Now we, we sound like old cranks, don't we? But well, here's, but, but you know, when I, I, I try to do a lot of work with young people and I get approached a lot at, from high school, college, grad student level. And I, I never say no uh, to talking to young folks about a career in intelligence work or the FBI. Um, but I am also, while I'm having that discussion with them, I'm also vetting them. And I, if I sense that they're, they're not someone that is really going to be in 
uh, all, all in, as they say, I start telling them the stories, uh, missing holidays, dinners, weekends, vacations canceled, you know, that a surveillance does not stop at 5 PM. I, I let them know. I may even go overboard letting them know that. And I think, I think if I, if I've dissuaded some in just having that discussion, I've, I've done a service there. I think this is a, an issue in newsrooms as well. Really? It's, it's a different world. The younger generations have different interests and different demands. But anyway, let's no, not no, I, I've got you. But anymore. so the skill set question is is related, and which is what what does make a good spy? Um, has that changed? And and a question if if the same characteristics and, and traits that make for a great, say, CIA officer um, do. Are those traits the same as someone who decides to betray their country? And I ask this because during my, uh, as a young manager at the FBI, my unit chief for a time was a guy by the name of Robert Hansen, generally considered to be the worst, uh, most damaging spy in FBI history, spied for the Russians for 10 years while working at the FBI, responsible for probably at least the death of 10 people who, uh, whose identities he gave up to the Russians uh, because they were working for the United States. What are the characteristics and traits, and how do they differ for someone who's doing it against their country? Well, a guy like uh, Robert Hansen or uh, Ames, who was the famous CIA turncoat, these guys are sociopaths. And although they share some characteristics with, you know, people who go out and recruit spies for us, you know, like I was uh, a case officer, the, the, the skills are the same and some of the mindset. But the, the guys who are traitors are on the American side anyway, are more sociopaths. They don't do it for ideological, very rare. We haven't seen in decades cases of Americans who turn coat for ideological reasons. During World War II, there were uh, the famous, you know, nuclear spies, the Rosenbergs and so on. But don't forget, we were allies with the Soviet Union in World War II. Um, We've been through a crushing depression and we had we only belatedly got into the war while the Germans were uh, crushing the Soviet Union. And, and so it w- wasn't hard to rationalize being a spy for the Russians, uh, if you sort of believe in communism as a future, hard it is to believe now. But, you know, our economy was in the pits for a long time and people began to think that communism might be an alternative. Um, but ever since then, Americans have turned coat mostly for money and for revenge against the bosses or they're against the system. And ours are our people who go out and recruit spies, let's say Russians or Chinese. We find that and you know this well, uh, Frank, as a former head of counterintelligence at the FBI, that the Russians and the Chinese have come to work for us as spies, a turncoat against their nation out of ideological reasons. They they've found uh, communism or authoritarianism just intolerable and the corruption that went along with it, which is not to say they didn't have personal motivations, revenge against superiors, or they wanted money. These were issues too, but they were primarily ideologically motivated to come work for the CIA or for British intelligence and Western intelligence. That's the big difference between their guys and our guys and our American uh, turncoats. They American turncoats generally do it for money and revenge. Yeah, I, well, I'd, I'd agree on the sociopath thing, and I think Hanson Hanson was deeply mentally disturbed. He was a sicko. No, no question about it. So let's focus more positively, uh, particularly those who might be listening who say, you know what, I, I'm really fascinated, and I, I might want to pursue a career in intelligence gathering. What what makes for a good American spy? Well, spies are very different than other people who deserve equal billing in the intelligence world, the analysts I'm thinking of. Spies are people who like to break China, break molds. They're impatient. You can't keep a spy in a, at a desk at headquarters. They, they want to be out in the field. They like the action. 
they like the danger. They just they just love being uh, uh, far away from headquarters, recruiting spies, being out in the street and testing the opposition and beating the opposition, whether it's the Russians, the Chinese, the Iranians, the Syrians, or in other places where we have to work against the opposition. The opposition is trying to crush us. So they're very fidgety and impatient. Uh, the analysts, on the other hand, are, are very minutiae-minded. Uh, a psychiatrist who's treated many people in the intelligence community for decades said the analyst is a guy uh, or woman who, who, who gets to the parking lot to get in their car and go home, and they fret that, oh, man, gosh, maybe I didn't close my classified drawer. So they, they go back and check again and again to make sure everything's tidy, everything's tied up. Whereas the men and women who go out into the field and spy for us are more like bull mooses. They crash and thrash around and, and uh, they really like, they like being out there in the danger world. So yeah, no, I'm glad I'm glad you you are including the intelligence analysts, which uh, in the FBI after 9/11, of course, uh, they were the name of the game. Uh, it's an intelligence-driven organization. There's intelligence analysts sitting on every single squad in every single field office. Um, but they've never gotten the respect in the FBI no, that they deserve. No, I mean for for much of my career, they they were literally called support employees. So no, in other words, you know. and even counterterrorism agents in the FBI. For a long, long time, maybe you can tell me this changed, but if you didn't carry a badge and a gun and you weren't out collaring bank robbers and so on, you just didn't get the same respect. You, you also, you know, the, the metric for advancement in the, in the FBI in particular was, you know, arrests, collars, uh, and counterterrorism and counterintelligence, as you really know, you know, that's a waiting game. That's a long and tedious game of of identifying and tracking foreign spies and terrorists, and you don't get a lot of arrests. So. Well, I, I go so far as to say in, in the counterintelligence world, if you're putting handcuffs on somebody, there's probably a failure. Yeah. You know, the, the goal, the goal of course, is recruitment in place, wrapping up an entire cell, recruiting somebody in place to work for you long-term. If you're putting handcuffs on somebody, some, something's probably gone wrong. Uh, so, you're, you're right about that. And then, yeah, the coolness factor for much of my career in the FBI. Yeah, it was the it used to be the, the guys working La Cosa Nostra in early, early years yeah. um, before my time. And then, yeah, it was the, the, the violent crimes guys. And and, and it, you know, at 9-11, then it, the talent moved. Uh, you, you're, you better put your best people on international terrorism. So uh, guys and gals working Al Qaeda. They were the cream of the crop. And, and, and interestingly, if you were working domestic terrorism, that was junior varsity, right? And now look at us. Now, I am certain um, field office leaders are, are putting their very best people on, on, if not half of the entire office, on the domestic terrorism threat. Well, I hope so. I mean, that's really a stickler because, um, you know, we can do what we want with foreign terrorists. In fact, we even you know, authorized the killing of American citizens like the uh, Anwar al-Awlaki uh, drone st- uh, missile strike uh, in Yemen. He was an American citizen. You can do what you want with people abroad, but here we have these constitutional protections in which the defendants in the January 6th uh, riot uh, are wrapping themselves. And it's a very, very sticky problem for the FBI because we now have the spread of the QAnon cult into the Republican Party, the hijacking of the Republican Party by extremists. And uh, I, I, we, we don't have a solution for that yet. Well, I, I, you know, it's interesting that we've, we've come to this point because I don't know if you intended this or not, but what I see happening is a merging of the threats. So, you know, the, uh, in my old agency, the FBI, we had these nice uh, stovepiped division labels. Oh, we have a counterintelligence division. We have an international, we have a terrorism division. We have a cyber division. We have a criminal division. Well, it's all, it, the, the threat now is incredibly murky and merged. So we have uh, the Russian intelligence services involved in uh, hacking and malware to impact our thoughts, our, our uh, election processes. We have terrorist organizations who are, you know, we just, just uh, as we speak uh, recently, the FBI has arrested two Iranians for propaganda 
during uh, one of our presidential campaigns. So the, the, it's incredibly murky. There's a bleeding of threat into threat, a merger of one, and the nice neat of, of all of the threats, and the domestic threat being fueled by disinformation, propaganda, much of which is coming from abroad, which is what the social media platforms are having a horrible time getting their hands around. And so the nice, neat stovepiped divisions in, uh, in CIA, FBI, that's nice, but the bad guys don't care one whit about which division is working them. They're exploiting those various division labels, and the threat is incredibly murky. And I, I, uh, I'm just amazed at, at the recruitment of talent in the intelligence community that is needed and, and is happening um, to understand all of that and work it successfully. Yeah, I would I would make me a rough analogy here with uh, in terms of foreign involvement and domestic politics and fueling extremism. Today, it's sort of like the fusion cars with electric uh, batteries uh, with little en- gasoline engines in them that turn on every once in a while. The Russians, Chinese, and so on, they don't need to do much. They don't need to give uh, extremism here much of a push anymore. You know, a little push here and there. It's taken on a life of its own, uh, and and the Chinese, Russians, all our enemies, got to sit back and say, "Boy, we're this is a wet dream for us." How Americans are tearing at each other, embracing magical thinking, conspiracy theories, uh, and this is all you know, uh, not due to, but fueled by the internet. We've always had right wing fanatics, you know, in American political life. Uh, in in the 1930s and 40s, he could go on the radio, uh, and they had a radio show of a famous Father Coughlin, uh, a rabid anti-communist uh, Catholic priest, had a big following. But that's nothing compared to the amplification that the internet brings to these extremist groups and theories, and and they're just catching on like like wildfire. We we have a you know a very strong anti-science movement uh, now which has combined with the traditional anti-government movement, which has been with us since the founding of the Republic. Uh, so it, it's just, a, it's like a California uh, a forest fire. It, it's out of control. Yeah, the, spark, I, I, the analogy is correct. The, the, the spark was, uh, was lit and the foreign uh, adversaries played a, a significant role in that. And now they have stepped back and said, uh, mm-hmm. we've, we've got a massive fire and I, I, I've said this on, on my television commentary, the, the folks, uh, in the Kremlin, the folks at uh, GRU and, um, SVR headquarters who are getting awards and meritorious service honors for starting what has now become this huge forest fire, as you say, um, must be in the hundreds of people. They, they could not have yeah. predicted this kind of success. And, and going back to the spying game, Americans rightly are, you know, not disposed to approving the, the actions of U.S. biases against fellow Americans. I mean, one of the tools for beating back these extremist groups, especially the ones who are violent oriented, is to infiltrate them with undercover agents. But this crosses into an area that makes Americans very uncomfortable. Um, we're seeing that play out in the in the case of against these Michigan guys who wanted to kidnap the governor and so on, the FBI either valiantly and heroically or dastardly infiltrated these guys and brought them down. Uh, it's a very controversial case, but that's the way you bring down enemy forces is you infiltrate them, neutralize them, uh, redirect them onto other uh, targets and round them up. This is a very uh, difficult area for U.S. intelligence to work in. Yeah, and yeah, they're, they're, and I, I don't think we have a solution to that. No, no, we don't. And and I think January 6th was an extreme example of the constraints that that are on law enforcement and intelligence operators. And for, by the way, uh, in many cases, rightly so. We, we don't want a domestic... A Gestapo. Yeah, we don't want a domestic spy agency out of control. Uh, we don't want a police ideology and thought... But, but nonetheless, what we keep hearing from, uh, for example, Chris Ray, when he testifies on the Hill, you know, well, we don't, it's a mantra that he, he presses the button. 
we don't we don't spy on ideology. We we you know there are certain things we're not allowed to do to look at you know, social media. Yet we were all sitting at home watching this play out on social media for weeks ahead of time. Groups talking about violence, breaching security, how to attack the Capitol Police, and so we've got to come to grips with this. We still don't have the tools in the toolkit, in my opinion. We don't have a domestic terrorism law. Um, even uh, that's why we're seeing the January six participants charged with assault, trespass, theft. I would disagree with you a, a little bit there, Frank. All right, tell me, tell me. I think we have massive tools to deploy against uh, domestic extremists uh, in the digital realm, uh, as well as through infiltrating them. And the only thing that's keeping us from doing that is that we happen to have officers in the Justice Department and the FBI and CIA who are very wary of uh, overuse of these uh, tools and our law uh, enforcement officers and uh, are constitutionally minded. But let's say the Republicans who are so influenced by extremists now take control of both houses of Congress and Trump or a Trump manquet gets uh, elected in 2024 and, and puts their people in charge of the DOJ and FBI. The government has immense tools on the books that are legal to go after what it considers extremists. And what if the new extremists to them become Democrats and liberals and civil rights groups, uh, left-wing groups? What if they decide that we've got the tools and we're gonna round them up? So we have to be really careful about the tools we give the government to go after domestic dissent. So I, you know, I, 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 that's why I love having these discussions. But I, I want to be clear on something. First, I'm while I'm a strong advocate for a domestic terrorism law that has, that shows the gravity of what happens um, in an event like January 6th. I, I tell people when we arrest someone who's robbed a bank, we don't arrest them for trespass. We, we arrest them for something far more serious, which is a crime against the government. It's uh, federally insured money. We call it bank robbery. We have that on the books for international terrorism. But the line that I draw is I'm not an advocate for a process to designate domestic terrorist organizations. I, I Famously, we had a president uh, whose name was Donald Trump who tweeted one day, I hereby declare Antifa to be a terrorist organization. Now, thank goodness. Um, I don't even know if Antifa is an organized group, but no, but they not. but but thank goodness there is no mechanism to to um, to designate a domestic terror group or or yes um, he he could have declared the Dem- the Democratic Party a domestic terrorist well, organization and, and, and we had you know under J Edgar Hoover the legendary or notorious uh, uh, FBI director uh, we did have organizations that were declared unlawful. Uh, and we had an FBI that went way overboard in attacking Martin Luther King and civil rights organizations. So, you but know, the rules, here's the thing, here's the distinction. And by the way, the, the news on, on that kind of thing continues. Um, as we recently saw the Manhattan district attorney exonerate two, uh, men who, yep. who, uh, were accused in the murder of Malcolm X. Yes. And, and the, the black Panthers and MLK, the good news is that, the domestic operating guidelines for the FBI, first of all, now exist, and they are incredibly strict with regard to domestic operations. And I would argue, as you refer to, that the lawyers have gotten in the way of uh, catching the January 6th uh, riot before it happened. And I have spoken to folks at FBI headquarters who keep saying, you know, the lawyers, the lawyers, the lawyers, and that, mm. yes, there, yes, there are certain tools they are not they are not anywhere near the tools that are are available for international terrorism mm-hmm, and sure. and you've got you've got to wait you almost have to wait for violence to happen yep. uh, now now for example we're, cl- we're we're approaching 700 people arrested for january 6 why the violence happened and now we're seeing the fbi pull out everything in their toolkit including aerial surveillance and drones and, and the, the stuff that's going on to get these people arrested is impressive, but it, they almost had to wait for the violence. And I would argue, yes, they should have um, used all the tools available to them previously that are involved in threat assessments, right? If they had paid attention to some of the tips in the social media, they could have opened something called a threat assessment. January 6th could have been declared a national security special event. But still, if you're going to try to get undercovers and particularly if you're going to try to get wiretaps, 
um, into a group, somebody's got to be espousing violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, by the way, that's that's different than international terrorism, where mere association with a designated group, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, will get the FBI all over you. So so we got to figure this out. I agree. Yeah. And we haven't, I fear we haven't figured it out yet. You know, I wrote a column several months ago saying how tired I was of wake-up calls. You know, I don't want to hear about wake-up calls anymore. I want to be, I want to, I want them to wake up. Yeah. And if January 6th, this is where I totally agree with you, Frank. If January 6th wasn't uh, one of these iconic, you know, wake-up calls, I mean, what is? I mean, doesn't, uh, they're coming back again. There's just there's no question yep. that these people are, are gearing up to come back uh, to declare the next election a fraud, a, a vote steal, even if uh, the Republican lost by tens of millions of votes next time around. They're still going to say the election was stolen. That's very... People should have no doubt about that whatsoever, and that the same mobs could be coming back to Washington or to state capitals to overturn the democratic processes. That is coming. And we haven't, the FBI, the Justice Department, hasn't got a lot of time to figure this out. No, and you know, if 9-11 was, and and it certainly was, a huge wake-up call that caused a strategic shift in in how we approach the international terrorism threat. Um, and we all seemed to agree on it. We had a 9-11 commission. We figured it out. We created the now massive Department of Homeland Security. We merged a CIA and FBI specialists into a counterterrorism center. We got that right. It's been successful. But now, as you say, never mind a wake-up call, we can't even agree on what an alarm clock looks like. So the, ge- the, the January 6th select committee that's trying to get to the bottom of this isn't even acknowledged, and, and we, we can't even define what January 6th was. So with that, on that positive note, uh, we, yeah. we've, we've, had, we've had a great discussion from spying <laughs> to terrorism to intelligence, counterintelligence, and the question of whether there is a perfect spy or not. Um, we haven't necessarily solved the, the uh, intelligence community's issues and problems, but we've certainly um, had a great discussion on what those issues are. We've given you your moment of doom. <laughs> That's right. No, I think, you know, we're so caught up in the present, particularly in the 24-hour news cycle, that we don't take uh, a moment to go back with someone with, uh, like you with experience, knowledge, both in two, in, in two worlds, if not more, Thanks for sharing your time with us, Jeff Stein. Great to be here, Frank. Thanks so much. Check out Jeff's uh, uh, podcast and books. And the the podcast is Spy Talk on the MSW Media Network. Thanks, Jeff. The Bureau is written by Frank Fagluzzi and executive produced by Allison Gill with sound design and editing by Molly Hockey with podcast art design by Johanna Coxeter. Music for The Bureau is written and composed by Peter Rydberg. The Bureau is a proud member of MSW Media Network, a collection of independent creator-owned podcasts focused on news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com.